You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. As Will said, I am the college minister here at Providence Church, and it's an honor and a joy to work through this passage with y'all this morning. I love the season of Advent. There's something about the, the imagery of the growing light of each Sunday that's coupled with kind of the days getting shorter and the nights getting longer, getting darker. I'm reminded that we're anticipating Christ's coming in the season of Advent. The light of the world is coming again. He's returning. I guess I like that imagery of the growing light because as a kid, I was afraid of the dark. Nighttime was my least favorite time. I had an active imagination, and so uh, at night, it was almost like it woke up all the fears I didn't know I had during the day. If I read a story about a bad guy, you know, uh, in, in a book during the day, suddenly that bad guy was now in my closet waiting to get me. Or maybe in science class, I read about this new exotic bug. Now it was crawling all over the walls, right? So what would any rational, you know, safety-oriented kid do? Well, I'd crawl over to the bathroom, turn the light on, creak it just like just open enough to stream a little light in. The light helped me see what was really there, what was true, that there weren't really bugs crawling on my walls and there wasn't really a bad guy in my closet. The season of Advent reminds us that the light of Christ is coming. It's actually streaming through right now. And though there is real darkness and real anxieties in our lives from that darkness, light is coming. It's now streaming through, and soon, actually, when Christ returns, right, the whole world will be lit up. Someday, we'll see everything clearly. No more fears, no more tears or darkness. So in Advent, we lift our eyes from the darkness and fix them on the light of Jesus, who he is and what he came to do. And to help us do that, we're going through these four songs in the second half of Isaiah, and they're called the Servant Songs. Each song we've been going through kind of highlights who Christ is and and, and what he has come to do, and we're seeking to behold Christ in the specific ways that the song is trying to help us see. The first song brought us to behold the servant's bringing of justice, how we uh, need him to satisfy our longings for for peace, for shalom. The second song last week, Todd helped us see that uh, we're meant to behold the servant's offering of salvation and light to the nations, and how Jesus is uniquely qualified to fill that role. Uh, We're going to be in Isaiah 50, uh, and it puts before us the servant's obedience to behold. Now, obedience is not something that we talk a lot in our culture about. I think we like to more often talk about the stuff that we do on our own, right? We would just call that autonomy, living life as we see fit. What we wear, what we buy, how I drive, right, who my friends are, all of those run through an autonomous grid. All of these uh, are the things that we kind of seek uh, to do life on our own. And if anyone had the right to live autonomous life, it would be the Son of God, right? He would be fit to live life and choose life as he saw it. But as we see, Jesus is not autonomous. He's obedient. And so as we see in this passage, it's Jesus' obedience that's not only central to his mission, his life, it's also something that the, the servant wants us to see is beautiful to behold. 
So we're going to behold Jesus' obedience today. And that's the big idea of, of our passage, which might come to a shock, is that the servant obeys God. And I want to see that uh, there are three things about obedience. The first is the beauty of obedience, which we'll see in verses four and five. Then we have the cost of obedience in verse six. And then the means of obedience in seven through nine. So the beauty the cost, and the means of obedience. Now, I didn't forget 10 and 11. We will get there. But I kind of want that to be a surprise, even though I just gave it away. Okay, let's talk about the first point, the beauty of obedience. Let's look at verse four together. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear, my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. When I hear the word obedience, and maybe when you hear it too, your, your mind is probably full of synonyms that, uh, that pop up like duty or formality or stoicism, maybe even fear. So it, it was shocking to me, kind of reading through this text, that uh, the first section of the song is really wanting us to see that, like, this beautiful intimacy that the servant has with God. Because in, in verse 4, the servant has uh, been given the tongue of those who are taught, or like the tongue of, uh, of a disciple. Morning by morning, he awakens my ear to hear. That's the description of that giving of the tongue. That's an intimate, a beautiful image. It's like a father holding his child, right, and speaking words to that child so the child would form their first word, right? Or a mentor leaning over the shoulder of her student, pouring into her the wisdom that she's received. The servant is being filled with the wisdom of God. That's a process that's gentle, it's patient. Morning by morning, God is awakening his servant with his word. We don't usually talk in this kind of poetic language of being given a tongue and an ear. That's probably kind of weird and a little vague. But they're actually Hebrew images that are steeped in identity and power. The tongue, for example, has incredible power. Proverbs 18 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. And then hearing God's word, right, having our ear opened to what God is saying, is another really powerful biblical idea. Uh, and and uh, David in Psalm 4 says that in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. What we see here is the beauty of obedience, which is intimacy with God. The bedrock, uh, the bedrock of obedience to God is intimacy with God. Do you see the order that's happening there? Intimacy leads to obedience. Then notice what the servant does with this word that has been given to him from God. In verse four, he actually offers it to sustain with the word those who are weary. So the beautiful intimacy that the son has, or the servant has with, the, with, with God, uh, is then turned and poured out as almost like bread, a sustenance to those who are weary. And then verse five, he, he didn't turn his back to God. He received God's word, he obeyed and trusted God. That's the beautiful heart of obedience. As a young child, a student, I had trouble with a few teachers. My obedience wavered upon how much they cared for me. Um, 
And I even have stories of my disobedience and like obstinance leading them to tears and frustration, right? Not something that I would want modeled here, but that's what happened. My favorite teachers, though, connected with me. I felt that they cared for me, and so I trusted them, and it's almost like they gave me a language to understand the world. They opened my ears to new things I didn't know about. Obedience was a natural conclusion of my trust with them. I trusted them, so I obeyed. And sometimes we think of Jesus' obedience in kind of a a transactional sense, right? He obeyed God's law because we couldn't. He stood in our place, so he gets what we deserve, and we get what he deserves. Now, that's all true, and we all kind of rest our lives on that truth, but it's not purely transactional. It's not cold or scripted. It's this beautiful intimacy. Jesus listened to the Father. He learned from the Father. The Father was pleased with Jesus. He delighted in him. His obedience, then, of of Jesus was born out of that trust that he had. The night before Jesus died, he prayed for his disciples. You can read it in John 17, and actually, we're going to be preaching through that soon. And this is what he says. Now they, the disciples, know that everything you, God the Father, have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. Can't you see the beauty of obedience that the intimate relationship of the Father and the Son have? And then what's even more amazing about the gospel is that we're folded into that trust. We're invited into that kind of intimacy that the Son has with the Father. In Christ, we can have intimacy with God. We can be awakened morning by morning by the Father's love, by his word. This is possible because of the servant's obedience. So behold the beautiful obedience of the servant. Okay, that's the first thing we see, is the beauty of the servant's obedience to God. And that sounds awesome. That sounds great. I think a lot of us would be up for that kind of beautiful relationship. But there's a second thing. There's the cost of obedience. It's it's what what that obedience leads to. Let's look look at verse 6 together. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Just notice really quick the amazing symmetry of the song. There's like so many fun connections that we could spend all day on, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say one of these things. The servant's intimate obedience means in verse four, or in verse five, that his back is not tor- turned toward God, right? He's not turned backward is how it, it was, it's put. But then in verse six, his back is offered to those who strike him. And so to add more to this connection, the verb offer there is the same verb for give in verse four, natan. The, the, the poem is highlighting the servant's mediating position, right? The Lord God has given the servant a tongue and an ear and he awakens him, right? But then in verse six, the servant gives his back and his cheeks and his face to those who would strike him. It gives us this really powerful image of obedience. The servant's face is you know, towards God with his back, right, facing those who would oppose God. In other words, it means his obedience opens him up as a target to others. It means his devotion to God uh, makes him open to disgrace and shame upon his back. 
And then he, he talks about his face and people pulling out his beard, right? Which, yeah, no one's ever done that to me, but that would be painful. But the idea of suffering be connected with the face is a little odd. But in our lingo, we might just say that someone is saving face, okay? They're defending their reputation. They're trying to make sure that their, their name isn't smeared through mud, right? But here, the servant does not save face. He does not hide his face. Even though there's disgrace and shame being poured on the servant, the servant doesn't hide. He, he doesn't try uh, to defend himself. He's obeyed God and he's willing to suffer for it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does a lot of fun things. And one of the fun and weird things he does is he flips like well-known laws on their head and kind of, and, and kind of enhances them and like, strengthens them and makes them more intense. So for instance, a law said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus thought, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, offer your other. And if anyone takes your shirt, take your cloak off your back and give it to them. And that's what the servant is doing here. He willfully gives of his face, like the image of his respect in the community to those who would disgrace him. And the question is why? And in Jesus, we, we, we get that fulfillment, we get the understanding. He offers that to save them, to save the very people who disgrace him, and ultimately to save us, right, as well. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that same language when Jesus is tried to be crucified. This is in chapter 26. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Then a chapter later, Matthew continues, then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Notice how Matthew aligns his depiction of Jesus here with the depiction of the servant in Isaiah 50. Jesus is the one who does not hide his face from disgrace and spitting. He obeys God and his obedience leads to the ultimate climax of suffering for any human crucifixion. Now, we could take a step back and say something about our calling to obey God in the midst of suffering. And, and that, that's good and, and that, that should be done. But I think we can also just do what these songs are inviting us to do. To behold the servant to behold his suffering, his obedience unto death, his obedience for us. As, as we sin and bring suffering into the world, and actually as we ourselves simply just exist and live in a world that is being currently run and, and, and have reign of, of, of darkness and sin, we feel the effects of that suffering. We're invited to see our suffering, our shame, our sin put on Jesus, the obedient servant the one who fulfills these words in Isaiah 50. So behold the cost of obedience in Christ. So the servant's obedience is rooted in his intimacy with God, right, that beautiful obedience. It leads to the suffering at the hands of men, the cost of obedience, and now we come to the means of obedience, okay? Let's look at verse seven through nine together. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. 
Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. All right, those are the words of a very confident person. Someone who is very self-assured, right? But we just read about a person who has gone through a lot of suffering, a lot of disgrace. There's no reason for them to be confident. So why is the servant so confident here? Well, the servant says that his confidence is coming from the Lord God's help. The reason he can receive disgrace and shame is because he knows, he's assured in who his help is, it's in God. And the word help there in Hebrew is azer. It's, it's a word actually littered throughout the Old, Old Testament. It's one of like the most commonly used Hebrew verbs. It's actually where we get the word Ebenezer, which is from the line, come thou fount. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, which we've probably sung so many times and had no idea what that means. It simply means stone of help. Because people would, uh, in the Old Testament, they, w- they would build small, you know, little altars, and it would be a sign that, oh, God has delivered us here, so we build a little altar, a little stone of help, right? And the Psalms are almost built around this verb, but one in particular helps, no pun intended, get it at the sense here. In Psalm 37, David writes, the Lord God helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and sa- saves them, because they take refuge in him. So help here is of a very different kind of help than I can bring at HEB, right? When I'm running in, I see someone, you know, struggling with, with, with bags and groceries. I'm like, all right, here, let me, let me help you out. I'll help you carry it to your car. That's a really kind thing to do, and I should definitely be doing that more. But that's not the kind of help we're doing. They would have been fine if I hadn't have helped them. You know, the, the kind of help we're talking about is deliverance. It's impossible without God's help. If God doesn't step in, it's a non-starter. That's why the servant is so confident. It's because he trusts in God's deliverance. So in verse seven, the servant can say, I have set my face like a flint, meaning uh, his face is like a flint. He's resolute. He's steadfastly resolved because his mission, right, his commission will not be ashamed or turned away due to anyone shaming or trying to stop him because of God's help. This confidence leads the servant servant to send off a series of rhetorical questions in verse eight. Who can contend against me? And then the the line later, who is my adversary? The implied answer there is nobody. Nobody can stand against him or have a case against him because God is his help. God is his vindicator. And look, the servant just continues to go on. He answers those questions. Let them come stand with me. Let them draw near to me. In other words, they can't touch me. The enemies can draw near, they can be near, even though they're shaming and and throwing disrepute on my face, because fundamentally they can't do anything to the servant. And this is exactly what we see in Jesus. Luke depicts Jesus as determined to go to Jerusalem in Luke 9, which is actually the turning point in his whole gospel. At that point on, from Luke 9 on, Jesus is headed to the cross, and he goes there. He goes there because Jesus has an assurance of his vindication in the resurrection. That meant that he could suffer, he could endure shame at the hands of 
humanity uh, because of that help. Paul models that same kind of confidence for us in a passage we just went through in Romans 8. So even though our confidence right, falters and fails, we have the same means of obedience the servant does. It's in God's help. And actually, Paul uses the same kind of rhetorical questions here as the song. I'm just going to pick a few here in 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And then in 33, who will bring charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? And then famously, who will separate us from the love of Christ? The implied answer again is nobody. No one can contend against God's people. It's not because they're these amazing people. It's because God is their vindicator. God is their help. So behold Christ who is the one who trusts in God's help, who trusts in God's vindication. Christ as the servant, again, offers us an invitation through him to experience that same kind of confidence, that that same kind of assurance it's not through us, it's not because of us, but because of the servant's obedience. So behold the servant's help. All right, so that's the end of the song, you know, close credits. But we have two more verses that, that give us a, a commentary on the song. Isaiah kind of takes a step back and starts talking uh, to the reader. So until now, the song has been about the servant's beautiful obedience, right? His intimacy with God the cost of obedience is suffering, and then the means of obedience is help. So these two verses are are where Isaiah is gonna shift to us, to the readers, to the hearers. This is in verse 10 through 11. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. When you conjure up images of people in the Bible who walk in the darkness, how would you describe them? I think you would probably conjure up these rebellious folks, you know, these people who are disobedient, and they're not like the servant that we just read about in the song. And then when you think of people who walk in the light in the Bible, how would you describe them? I think you would think of people like the servant, right? They're the obedient ones. They're the ones uh, who live in the way of the servant. But here it's oddly kind of flipped. Those who don't have a light, who walk in darkness, are the ones who live like the servant lives because they live in obedience. They live in trust. They are trusting in God's help. They're trusting in the way of the servant. Whereas it's those who have the light, or it's actually just a light, because it's what they've made on their own resources, their own cunning, right? They make that, uh, they make that fire um, apart from God's help. And so, the, 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 so Isaiah says they're condemned, and God gives them over to their response to the darkness. Isaiah assumes that Israel and all of humanity, all of creation, sit in darkness. And so the question of the song and the question that Isaiah is trying to get at here is not, can you escape the darkness? It's actually, how do you respond to the darkness? Will you, like the servant, hope 
and trust in God's help and deliverance in the face of suffering? Or will you, like Israel and all of humanity, build a fire for yourself? When I hear Isaiah ask in verse 10, who fears the Lord, I want to say, yes, I do. I trust God. But if I'm honest, I like building my own fires. I'd like a little control on my life on my own terms. Save a little bit of money for an oncoming storm. Because the fears of uh, the darkness around me and the darkness I see in myself, I'd love just to build up huge barriers, right? And cope with that with idolatry and in my own way out. To protect myself and to protect the people I love. But the invitation for us is this. Do not ignore the present darkness and suffering in our world. It's present and real and it's all around us and I don't need to remind us of that. But our way out is not through our own coping or creativity or cunning. No, our way out is the deliverance that can only come from God, from God who is our help. And we can trust and obey the voice of his servant, Jesus, because of the servant, because of Jesus' intimacy, because of his own suffering and his own help from God. We're invited uh, into what's true of the servant by the gospel. So, behold Christ, the one who obeys God. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.